So uh, Colossians 3 is where we're going to go. Um, have any of you guys ever spent a season in your life where you felt like you were wasting time? I mean, you're just mailing it in. You, you feel like whether you're, you're in a job or a role where it's just kind of pointless and worthless and you're killing time, you're, you're just paying the bills with your job, whatever that would look like for you. So, so here's a little bit of my story. I became a youth pastor at 19, which just full disclosure was way too young. Um, I, I'm, I'm like youth pastoring uh, people who are like six months younger than me. I'm supposed to be exercising spiritual authority and give them wisdom and discernment. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. But, but he, here's this idea that I had. Uh, Jesus saved me when I was eight, and immediately I felt this burden to preach the gospel and to, to tell people what Christ has done for me and what Christ can do for you. And, and I had this idea in my head um, that, that uh, serving in ministry, serving in some role where you had spiritual authority and responsibility, that was a calling from God, and that basically any other sphere of life, any other role in life wasn't. Uh, that it, whatever we do to, to fill our secular jobs, right, when we're not serving in the local church, uh, whatever role we might have in society and culture, that that really was not an inherently spiritual thing. And that if I wanted to do an, an inherently spiritual things, I had to do overtly spiritual things, like preach uh, the scriptures. And, and what I come to find out as I matured in my faith is that's just not true. While preaching God's word and serving a local church may be an overtly spiritual thing, everything we do in our nine to five, everything we do day in and day out in whatever sphere of life it is that you fill, whatever sphere of influence you have in your community or in society, all of that is inherently spiritual because the scripture teaches that all of life is an act of worship to someone or something. So every activity we engage in is an inherently spiritual activity. And man, I had to come to learn that in a very hard and painful way. So uh, I had, so started as a youth pastor at 19, served in a variety of churches, going through seminary, graduate from seminary, and I stepped down from the church where I was serving as associate pastor. I'm about to marry the woman of my dreams, my, my wife Rebecca, uh, about to marry her. We're living in, in Virginia together, and, 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 uh, and so I'm doing the whole leave and cleave thing that Pastor Ben talked about, and, and, and I'm, I had this job lined out where I'm going to be a professor in an undergraduate program in apologetics and philosophy. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this is important. This is inherently spiritual. And, and I'm going to be doing something meaningful with my life. And God, in his kindness and in his grace to me, literally like a week before my wife and I are getting married, I, I get called in by the guy who would be my boss at the university. He says, hey, man, I got some bad news. Uh, the funding for your position fell through. You don't have a job. So I had to go to my soon-to-be father-in-law and tell him, hey, I know we're getting married in a week, but I, I don't have any income. I don't have a job. Can we please still get married? Uh, and we still got married. Glory to God. It was uh, grace upon grace. But my wife had a job. And, and so I started scrambling, looking for any job I could possibly get to get some kind of income. And I got a job at Best Buy. And that was the only job I could find. Best Buy was hiring. I was a, a, a techie guy at that point in my life. And, and so they Best Buy in Lynchburg, Virginia had an entrance exam, which is the weirdest thing ever. So I go in and I get this entrance exam to decide where I'm going to work in the store based upon how much I know about electronics. And, 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 and I, I knew a fair amount. I'd fix people's computers. I, I, I would uh, install people's TVs for them just for fun because I like that kind of thing. And, and so I got a little nervous after I took the test because what I was afraid was I would score well enough they'd put me in Geek Squad. And, and just the whole idea of the, I mean, the Geek Squad is a fine job, but, but the whole badge and driving 
driving around like the, the Volkswagen Beetle just terrified me. Uh, I just, my, my pride, didn't, I just couldn't go there. And so my first day of work, I show up. Um, my supervisor takes me to get my uniform, and, and I see the blue shirts. I walk right over to grab a, a large blue shirt, uh, and, and he's, oh, no, no, that's not what you're wearing. I'm like, oh, Lord, no. And, and, and he takes me by the white shirts and the badge, and that was, instead he hands me a black T-shirt. I'm a black T-shirt guy, so I was pretty stoked. Uh, but then he turns around the black T-shirt and written in giant orange letters, it just simply says geek. And, and so I was like... Lord, this is not what I thought would happen. And, and, and so my entire time working there, anyone uh, uh, over the age of 40, and I'm quickly approaching that, so there's no, no hate if that's you, uh, anyone over the age of 40, when they saw me, they just say, hey, geek. So I appreciated that, that they would just call me geek. And, and, and so here's what I did. I was irritated that God had me in this situation doing something that was a big waste of my time, my talent, my gifting in my mind. And, and so I spent the next few months irritated at God, and I wasted an unbelievable amount of gospel opportunities. I, I had men and women all around me, dead in their sins, in marriages that were crumbling, struggling with addictions, and, and I'll just be straight up with you. I was not about sharing the gospel or helping people find Jesus, see Jesus, understand all that God had for them because I was sulking because I thought that I was wasting my life. And in that season where God was humbling me, I came to realize something extremely important, that there is no passage in the New Testament that says that God calls people to ministry but nothing else. Just not there. That, that in fact, when you read the New Testament, calling in the life of Christians is in two ways. One, you were called to salvation. That if you're in Christ, it's because Jesus called you. And then secondly, you're called to give the gospel. And that's everybody. Everybody. And so I had to wrestle with what, what theologians call the doctrine of vocation. I know that Mike talked about this a little bit last night, but I, I just want to tease that out a little bit. Uh, th that sometimes in life, we think that unless something is overtly spiritual, it's not inherently spiritual. And the truth of the matter is, every single role we play in society in life is, in fact, inherently spiritual. Whatever it is you're doing in your day-to-day -day life is an inherently spiritual activity that you should not waste. God has impassioned you for it. He's designed you for it. He's wired you for it. He's gifted you for it. So do it well. So do it well. And, 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 and listen, I think that for many of us, when we begin to wrestle with how God has designed us and wired us, that that whole process of trying to figure out where we fit in culture, in society, in our community, or even in our local church, we just miss the big picture of God's plan that every activity is meant to be worship, whereby either it's worship in your life consciously or it's worship in your life unconsciously, whereby you're pointing others to worship the, the God who has loved you and saved you and redeemed you. And, and so what I want to chase this morning very briefly is, is and if you indulge me for just a second, in a Redeemer Church in Rocky Mount, we, we typically have a big idea with every sermon, just a one-sentence summary of what we're going to tackle in a passage. And so what I want us to see today from Colossians chapter 3 is this big idea that, uh, and I'll throw it on the screen, that every role in the life of every Christian is sacred and it matters, so you should lead. 
Since everything is sacred and it matters, everything is inherently spiritual, even when it's not overtly spiritual, we ought to take the opportunity for leadership in that, that sphere of life very seriously. And I think that sometimes we wrongly understand what leadership is. Leadership does not, we always equate it with authority, that if you have authority, then you're a leader. No, no, no. Leadership has less to do with authority and more to do with responsibility. Do you take responsibility? When you take responsibility, that's leadership. So whatever sphere of life in your community, in your nine to five that God has you in, it is an opportunity for leadership by taking responsibility to see all of life as inherently sacred and all of life as inherently worship. And so my hope is that as we jump into Colossians 3 together uh, this late morning, that God would impress that upon our souls. And that if, if you've ever wondered if what you're doing day in and day out is in fact a meaningful and inherently spiritual thing, that God would save you a lot of the, the, the humiliation and humbling that he had to do to me. And that then tomorrow you will get up and you will see all of your life as inherently sacred, inherently spiritual, inherently all of your activity as worship. So that's pray, ask the Lord to help us in this, and then we'll jump into Colossians 3 together. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your goodness and grace. Father, thank you for my brothers gathered in this room. Uh, Lord, what I ask is that by the preaching of your word that you would crush our idols, uh, that you would destroy those things that blind us from the work of Christ in our lives and the work of Christ that we have been given to do day in and day out in our relationships, in our jobs, and whatever sphere of life you have placed us. Father, would you help my brothers in this room to see what it is you have entrusted them with, that they would take on responsibility and therefore lead as you have designed them to do. If there are any gathered among us still dead in their sins, Father, what I ask is that by the preaching of your word, you would bring conviction in such a way that you would redeem them from their sins. You would call them to saving faith in your son, Jesus, so that they would not be wasting the moments of life but that they would be redeeming them by the work of your son in such a way that they would see all of their life as inherently sacred, important, and meaningful. So, Father, be with us now. Help us as we look at your word. That's what I ask. And since Jesus is good, strong, and saving name, amen. All right, so in just a second, we're going to jump into verse 22 of Colossians 3. But before we do, uh, the first word you're going to see is bondservant. Some Bible translations will say slave. And, and I think when we see this, this, this word but in, our, in our Bibles, typically uh, we, we get the wrong idea of what this is. Immediately our minds are drawn back to uh, uh, the scar of slavery from the antebellum south here in the United States. And we, we begin to re remember this this and evil thing that, quite frankly, has, has uh, permanently marred our history. And, and that's what we think of. But that's not what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about slavery or bond servants. And I, I want to help you see that. So let me give you a couple of ways that this is different, just so that as we jump in, you'll see that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Colossians 3 actually has major implications for your life. That it's not talking about something radically different than what you and I experience, but it's talking about something that is extremely important. So let me give you uh, about six reasons why why uh, this is a different thing. Uh, number one, about 50 to 60 percent of the Roman Empire in the first century was technically in some form of bond servitude. 
Uh, this was basically uh, uh, the majority of the Roman Empire's population. This was a true designation of them. Secondly, that this was not a racially motivated thing. It had nothing to do with racism. It, ha- it had nothing to do with racial oppression. It was a completely different thing. Thirdly, that slaves could become free and often, often bond servitude was voluntary and for a very specific limited period of time, so much so that by the age of 30, most bond servants were freed. So why would somebody become a bond servant? If you were not born into a family of great wealth, power, or influence, if you were not from an aristocratic family, but you wanted to buy a home, you wanted to own cattle, then you had to go to somebody who was wealthy and powerful and say, here's the deal. I will serve you for seven years if you'll buy my family a home, if you'll buy my family some cattle, so that then maybe the next generation won't have to do this. It was, it was almost like, like our, our loan system today, but it was done through the, the, the form of bond servitude. Not only that, but slaves had legal rights, again, to own private property. And and, and even beyond that, often what we think of as respectable jobs in our culture were considered the jobs of bond servants in the first century. So whether that be teachers, tutors, uh, those involved in medical care, those who would oversee the construction of of buildings, these were all part of a a bond servant's week-to-week and day-to-day Task And so this is a, a different thing than what we think of in American history. And, and so this has massive real-world implication and application for us. So let's go. Colossians 3, we'll pick up in verse 22. The Apostle Paul says this, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, now the reason why he has to say this is because by nature, we are people pleasers. By by nature, we want people to like us. Like most, most of us don't go through life wanting to be disliked. If you do, there's something wrong with you. Uh, uh, Most of us want, most of us are like Jim Halpert in the office. I mean, Jim is the ultimate people pleaser. My man never works, except when someone's looking. And then he has some funny little quip, looks at the camera, smiles, right? Up, oh, Jim. We're people, we're Jim Halperts by nature. We're people pleasers. But Paul says, don't be people pleasers. Fulfill your role with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. But when we find ourselves in a season of life or a role in life and culture that we think is meaningless or unimportant, our temptation will be to mail it in and just do what we need to do so the people around us will still think we're respectable, decent men. We'll mail it in. Because we, we, we think that unless, unless we find ourselves in a role in society or in a job or a season of life that, is in, that, that we deem as fulfilling, that then we're wasting our time. But men, understand, God's plan for you, whether it's in your career, your relationships, whatever your sphere of responsibility and influence in your community is, God has not designed that to bring fulfillment to your life. He's designed that as an opportunity for you to fulfill your mission in life. There's a big difference. Whatever God has gifted you to do and impassioned you to do can bring a sense of fulfillment. It absolutely can. But that's not the end goal. 
The end goal is not for us to feel fulfilled. The end goal is for us to fulfill the mission that God has given us, which is to be men who love the gospel, exude the gospel, and demonstrate who Christ is to every single person we come in contact with, every single person in our sphere of influence. Let's keep going. Uh, in fact, I want to take you back to something we keep, we, we've hit on now twice, Genesis chapter 2. I, just, I want to show you that, 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 that God has a grand design for your role in life that is inherently spiritual. Genesis chapter 2. I know Mike mentioned this and, and Pastor Ben uh, mentioned this. In Genesis chapter 2, you, you've got God creates the world, Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 2 retells the creation story, but in much more detail. Now from the perspective of someone standing on the ground in the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 2.15... Uh, here's what uh, Moses records God saying. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God's original design for Adam in a pre-sin world is to be a gardener. There's nothing overtly spiritual about gardening, is there? But evidently there's something inherently spiritual about it. Even though it is a seemingly on the surface, most of us, our dream in life is not to be a gardener, trimming trees, cleaning up, cleaning up weeds. Now, this is pre-weeds, but, but in most of our minds, gardening is not an inherently spiritual activity, but evidently it is because it's part of God's good design for Adam. And so even in seeing this thing that we would consider a mundane activity, God has designed it to be inherently a spiritual activity. And in fact, those words, work it and keep it, are used later in the Old Testament uh, when it says that, that Adam is to work the garden and keep the garden, those same two Hebrew words are used later in the Old Testament to describe the activity of the priest in the temple complex. So, so what that means then is one, one of the ways that Old Testament scholars say you could read this verse is God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it to worship and obey. That there is something inherently worshipful and inherently sacred about this seemingly mundane activity of gardening in the Garden of Eden. That, that what God has designed us to do is to see all of life, every sphere of influence that we have, every role we fulfill as inherently spiritual, as a sacred activity by which we are fulfilling God's mission for us and his grand design for all things. Now, how often is it that we find ourselves, again, in some role in life, some job, some kind of sphere of influence in society, and we think it's completely meaningless. God's design for the first man in a pre-sin world, gardener, inherently spiritual, worshipful activity. Men, every single thing you do matters. All of it. All of it. There's no such thing as a wasted moment or wasted activity or a wasted role. It's all sacred. It's all inherently spiritual. I, I think one of the places where we actually see this most clearly is from Matthew 6. We're going to go to Matthew 6 real quick. We'll jump around and then we'll come back to Colossians 3. Matthew 6, Jesus gives us what we know as the Lord's Prayer. He tells us how to pray. Uh, and as he does this, notice what he says. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or your name is holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. Now, now, have you ever thought about what Jesus is telling us to pray in that moment? Do you realize that one of the rhythms of the Christian life ought to be this, praying, please bring heaven to earth? Adam had heaven, in, heaven on earth in the Garden of Eden. Revelation 21 tells us that uh, the Garden of Eden becomes the Garden City, New Jerusalem, and comes back to earth at the return of Christ. But part of what Jesus tells his followers to do in their prayer life is to pray, bring heaven to earth. Now, here, here's why that's so significant for us in our day-to-day lives. When you and I fulfill our God-given mandate of bringing order to the chaos of the world around us, we are previewing for the watching world, for the people that you and I are in relationship with, that we go to work with, that we're in class with, whatever the situation may be, we are previewing for the watching world uh, 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 the kind of order that will be brought to the chaos that now marks creation at the return of Christ. And so in the local church, it is a, a glimpse of heaven on earth, this, the, the, this, this order that will be brought to the chaos globally when Christ returns. You and I in our day-to-day lives are meant to bring order to the chaos to give a glimpse of what it will be like when heaven once again comes to earth. But the prayer life of every godly man ought to be, Jesus, bring heaven to earth. Continuing on, verse 11. He says, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, when we pray things like this, feed me today, how does God answer that kind of prayer? He can do it supernaturally, right? We serve a God who can do all sorts of things supernaturally and miraculously. He raised his son from the dead for crying out loud, like like nothing is out of bounds for him. And yet, the way that God most often answers our prayers is not through miracles, but it's through other men. It's through other people in our lives. I love a a comment that uh, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther has on this. I want to read it to you. He says this. I think it, it frames all of life for us. Here's what he says. God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. What else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government? He's he's talking about every sphere of life. That's family relationships, that's your job, that's society. But just such a child's performance, child's play, by which he wants to give his gifts in the fields, at home, and everywhere else. These are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. In other words, God's plan to answer most of the prayers that we pray is through other human beings being the flesh and blood mask of God in the world. That's why every single role you fulfill in society matters because you are the flesh and blood mask of God in the world, bringing order to the chaos so, so think about, uh, give us this day our daily bread. How could God answer that prayer? He could do it through, he could cause stakes to rain from the sky. Glory to God. Just, just falling out of the sky, but he doesn't. Instead, how, how, how does he most often answer the prayer, give us this day our daily bread? Well, your employer gives you money for whatever it is your job is. You, you take that money and you go to Aldi or Harris Teeter or whatever grocery store it is here in Greenville that you go to, and you get bread from the shelf, and you've got a human being at the cash register that you give money to, and you take your bread, you take your food, you go home, and you eat it. 
And so there's some way, in some form, that the, the man or woman in the bakery baking the bread that then goes to the grocery store, they're the flesh and blood mask of God, making sure the bread is there. The person at the cash register is the flesh and blood mask of God, receiving the, the money that you have received from the flesh and blood mask of God, known as your boss, that you have now given them money, so now you can take the, the bread home and eat it. God answers the prayers that we pray most often through other people. Maybe think about it this way. One of the things we're told to pray in Scripture is, God, give us wisdom, give us discernment. And God, God, God can do that supernaturally. You can have a moment where you just say, I don't know what to do in this. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. I need discernment. And God can supernaturally, almost like downloading a file, give you like immediately what you need to know, how you need to make a, a, a decision in a given moment. Like, like I've had those kinds of moments. But most often, the way that God gives us wisdom is through men and women that he has impassioned and gifted to be educators, teachers, who teach us how to think, how, uh, give us knowledge, and tell us how to use it, wisdom. What about with our bodies? Our, our bodies are aching, our bodies are decaying. Sometimes we get severe injuries, we get illnesses, and we get diseases. Now, we can pray for healing, and God does miraculously heal people. I have seen firsthand praying over people with, with severe heart conditions that, that may cause them to lose their life, pray over them, th their heart's fine. Doctors baffled. Seen people be prayed over with cancer, they go back in for a scan, it's gone, no explanation. God can do that miraculously. But most often the way that God answers the prayer for our bodies to be repaired and healed is through men and women that he is impassioned and gifted to be doctors and surgeons and nurses who care for us. They're the flesh and blood mask of God healing our bodies. Think about it this way. How do children know what the father heart of God is like? Through their fathers being the flesh and blood mask of God loving children well. Every single role we fulfill, men, in society, in culture, in the workplace, in your community, is inherently sacred, it is inherently spiritual, and it matters, so do it well, lead. Take on the responsibility, own it. All of it matters. All of it is ultimately the work of God in the world through his people bringing order to the chaos, all of it. Let's keep going. Go back to Colossians 3. We'll pick up in verse 23. So Paul says this. So whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He literally gives us kind of a, a roadmap for our vocation, our roles in life. Take a look at what he says there. Verse 22, he says, uh, um, he tell, or he's told us not by way of eye service, which means whatever role you fulfill, do it honestly. Uh, verse 23, he says, work heartily, which means whatever it is that you do, give it your all. Exercise responsibility. Do it well. And then in verse 24, he says, knowing that you are serving the Lord Christ, that ultimately every role you and I fulfill in culture and society is Christ's work in the world, bringing order to the chaos by which you and I are previewing the world to come in Revelation 21 when heaven comes back to earth. An inherently sacred, inherently spiritual activity that every single follower of Christ, and specifically man in Christ, has been tasked with. Let's keep going. Verse 25, he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
there's no out for not taking this seriously. Like there are dire consequences for us not taking seriously whatever it is God has entrusted us with for not exercising leadership by taking on responsibility of doing it well. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then he takes it to this, this, this position of, but okay, what if you do have authority? Again, we always think of leadership as tied to authority. It's really tied to responsibility. But let's say you do have authority. Let's say you do find yourself in a position of power or privilege over someone else. Oh, you are doubly responsible. You are doubly responsible. And look at me. You have power, privilege over somebody. Every single person does. Fathers, you have it over your children. You have a, a, a physical advantage over your wife. Employers, you have it over your employees. I mean, you could just go through every, every sphere of life. You have power and privilege over somebody. So use it well. And listen, this requires you to know something about yourself. It requires you to know a little bit about how you're wired. Uh, I, um, anybody do Myers-Briggs? You know Myers-Briggs? Be honest. How many of you? A few heads? Okay. If you're doing Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENTJ. Um, if, how many about Enneagram? Anybody do the Enneagram? More of you? All right, because millennials, that's what we do, Enneagram. Um, so in, in the Enneagram, you've got all these different personality types, right? You've got eight, the challenger. You've got nine, the, the, the fun-loving peacemaker. Seven, the, the one who's joyful. Uh, the one who is a perfectionist by nature. My wife's a one. I'm a three, which by definition means I'm almost a bad person. All right, it's just what it means. And I know that about myself. It means I'm like this close to being a monster, all right? And, and so uh, what, 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 here's what I, I know that means about me then, because I know that about myself. When I get stressed out, I have to verbally process it, or I'm going to be the worst person you've ever met. I get stressed out, I've got to start talking about it out loud. Uh, I have a staff that I'm responsible for at our church. I, I teach uh, college and seminary courses. I have students I'm responsible for. And so I know when I find myself getting really stressed out, if I don't tell somebody outside of my wife about the stress level in my life, I'm going to be a monster and start firing people. I'm going to fail papers. I'm just going to, I mean, it's just go not going to be good for anybody. And, and so that requires me to have lots of uncomfortable situations and conversations. Uh, where I will literally walk in on a Tuesday morning, we're off on Mondays, and to our staff, we'll have a staff meeting, and I'll be like, all right, guys, let me just tell you a couple things that have gone on, even if it makes me look ridiculous and stupid. Uh, I will tell them just so that I am not tempted in my frustration with my life to be frustrated with them. And so like, like it, it, just, just by way of example of just how uncomfortable this might be, um, right after my wife and I moved into the house we live in now, I had this great idea when she was pregnant with our third child, you know what we should do? We should move. And, and, and so we sold our house. She gives birth. Two weeks later, we move. I'm a great husband. Uh, so we move, and she's helping pack stuff up. And, and, and we're in this whole process of getting into this new house. We get into this new house, and, and it gives us more space because we knew we wanted to have more children. And, and, and the house is located on the side of like a hill. It's on the side of a hill. 
And, and uh, we don't have sewer, we have a septic tank. And septic tanks are the greatest, I mean, who wouldn't want a tank of all the stuff that you've flushed and run down drains in your house, in your front yard under the dirt, right? It's a great idea, good design. And, and so we have a septic tank, all right? And, and, and what I found out after we moved into the house, didn't know this before we moved in, but after we moved into the house, what I found out is that in order for a house on a hill to properly operate its septic tank, it has to have a pump system system in the house. This is terrifying to me, all right? And, and so what I was told then was if the pump system ever fails, everything will backload into the house. Yeah. And so uh, one night I'm sitting in the living room. We've been in the house. I mean, it's been like a really stressful season at the church, and, 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 and I'm behind on grading papers. And, 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 and all of a sudden we're sitting in our living room. Kids are in bed. My wife and I are like, all right, let's just, let's just drink some like decaffeinated coffee before bed because now that I'm 35, I can't drink caffeine after 4 p.m. or I'm up all night. Um, and, and, and we're just sitting there trying to relax a little bit, and all of a sudden I hear an alarm. I look out the window. There's this big red flashing light on the side of my house. Didn't know this light existed, but it's lighting up the whole neighborhood. It's raining. I run outside in the rain. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I realize the light is on the side of an electrical panel box, which is right above my septic tank, and so it hits me. The pump has failed. And so in the rain, I flip open the electrical panel box and start to grab this, this breaker that is flipped. Why am I grabbing something electrical in the rain? Because I'm an idiot. So I grab it and go to pump it and get knocked on my rear end by a jolt, which just makes me matter. And so I get up and flip the switch. The alarm stops because, and I go in the house. I call the guy that, 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 that built the house. We didn't get it built for us, but, but I knew the guy who built it called him like, what's going on? He's like, oh man, that's not good. He said, it, 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 you need to pay attention to that because if the pump has failed and, and your kids get up in the middle of the night and flush a toilet or, 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 or somebody just puts something, they get a drink of water and turn the faucet on and it just runs down the drain. If the pump's not working, everything's going to backload in your house and every drain in your house will become a fountain. Do you all want to know how miserable sleep is when you have this haunting specter of potentially every drain in your house becoming a septic fountain? You don't sleep. So I wake up the next day having slept maybe 30 minutes because every few minutes I'd be like, hey, baby, I think I hear it again. She's like, you don't. Just let it grow over. But I, I would jump up, go outside, and look. And, and so he, I, I am on edge the next morning. So I walk into my office, look at the guys on our team, and I'm like, guys, I need to have a real talk with you about uh, septic fountains. <laughs> I was up all night worried about, and, and, and like, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to admit to guys who are looking to your leadership that you laid awake all night afraid of your toilets and your drains overflowing with backload septic material, but, but I have developed this rhythm where I will go into our office if I'm really stressed out, like, all right, guys, here's everything stressful that happened over the weekend. You know about it. I, now I feel better. Now I don't feel like I need to prove anything. I don't feel like you've done anything to me. I feel better about it. Now, if you're not a three, which means you're probably a decent person if you're not a three, then, then maybe for you, going on a bike ride is how you can decompress. Going on a walk, going fishing, grilling, taking me on the duck hunting trip with you, something to make yourself relax. You need to know yourself so that you don't abuse your power and privilege over children. Over your spouse, over your friends, over your coworkers, over those that you have been entrusted with in some way, shape, or form. You have to know yourself. 
And so Paul tells, here in verse 1, masters, those with power, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Are you using your power and position for good or for greed? For gain or for generosity? You see, when you're in a position of authority, the flesh and blood mask that you have been given is to be a physical manifestation of the humility and servant heart of Christ. Philippians 2 type stuff. So use it well, knowing that it is an inherently sacred, inherently spiritual, inherently worshipful opportunity, role in life that you've been given to steward well. And if you don't believe me, that every single role we've been given in life and society matters, it is inherently spiritual, is inherently sacred. Let's talk about the gospel for a second. What's the good news of the gospel? Good news of the gospel is that even though we are broken, wretched sinners who have broken the infinitely good and infinitely holy laws of an infinitely good and infinitely holy God, which is real bad news, by the way, because whenever we break laws, what do we say? We owe a debt to society, right? And when somebody, somebody owes their debt to society, they pay their debt to society. And then maybe they get their, their record cleaned up, their record expunged or whatever that word is that I don't know. And they get their record cleared and, and they've paid their debt to society. They're free to go. But you and I have broken the infinitely good laws of an infinitely good and infinitely holy God. Therefore, our debt to him is an infinite debt. Bad news is we're finite creatures. So we lack the ability to pay the infinite debt, right? It's just basic logic. So God the Father sent God the Son, the infinitely good, infinitely holy Son of God, eternal, to be born of a virgin and to take on human flesh to live the perfect sinless life we have not lived and could not live. He did that for us in our place. And then yet he died the sinner's death that we deserve to die for us in our place. All to pay the sin debt back to God we could not pay. Infinite debt, finite creature. Can't pay the debt. But the infinitely good and infinitely holy son of God can, and he did, and the evidence that he did is that three days later, God the Father raised God the Son from the dead in the same flesh and bone body in which he died. So for all those who repent and believe and trust Jesus alone in their place for their salvation, debts paid, you're right with God. The gospel in summary is simply Jesus in my place. That's the good news of the gospel. Here's my question, though. When did the sacred work of Christ to redeem and save sinners begin? Was it John 2 when he turned water into wine? First miracle. Was it then? Was it, was it in um, uh, uh, John 4 when he heals the official son from distance? Was it then? Was it John 6 when he fed the 5,000? Was it then? Was it when he, he raised a little girl from the dead? Was it when he walked on water? When did it begin? The moment he was born, when he was a son obeying Mary, his mother, and his adoptive father, Joseph. It's when he was a big brother to James and Jude. It, it, it was when uh, uh, Joseph invited him out back to the woodshed to learn how to be a carpenter. It's when he was building chairs and fences for people in Nazareth. 
It was in those moments that the work began, that he would live the perfect sinless life we could not live. Fulfilling all the rules. It was when, as most scholars would say, that Joseph disappears from the scene, likely died when Jesus was a teenager, which he, as a, the eldest son of the family, would have then become the breadwinner for the family. It's when he's providing for his mother and half-brothers and sisters that he's fulfilling the sacred work of being the sinless son of God so that he could redeem sinners like us. Every single moment of his life was part of his sacred work to redeem sinners. Every single moment of your life, every single sphere of influence, every single role you fulfill in society, culture, in your community is an inherently sacred activity by which you and I are meant to give the gospel of Christ in word and in deed to a world desperately in need of Christ, period. It's all inherently spiritual. It's all inherently sacred. All of it matters. Period. All of it. All of it. So the question then is simply, do you believe that? Do you believe it? Do you actually live like God has gifted you, wired you, and called you? Because he has called every man in Christ to be an ambassador of the gospel, to live with the kind of responsibility that demonstrates leadership in every area of life. Men, everything God has given you, every relationship, every role in this church, every role in the city of Greenville, every, every, every moment in your workplace, all of it is an opportunity for responsibility so that you can lead so that you will demonstrate the rule and reign of Christ in your life into the world so then we can call people to Christ the King. All of it is inherently spiritual. All of it matters, period. So lead, lead, and lead well. Let's pray.